Hey Michael, this is Jonna Kotler from your IAIA MFA. I've got an epic poem I think you're gonna love. I know, an epic poem, but I really love it. It's the Odyssey, the translation by Emily Wilson, and it's amazing. Check it out. Hello and welcome to the Origin Story Podcast, where once a month I ask an artist I respect to introduce me to an artist or piece of work they love. This month, professor and author Jonna Kotler introduces me to The Odyssey by Homer, translated, in this case, by Emily Wilson. So why this particular translation? Because you did specify this translation, so I'm curious about that. I specified this translation. It's The Odyssey, Homer, translated by Emily Wilson, and it's, it's the translation of our time. Like, I can definitely see here I am chatting. The theme coming out of today's class, kids, is that we can only speak about our own time, right? So you could read a different translation of the Odyssey. You can, it's almost like having a time travel machine. Because if you go back and read, like, 17th-ish century poet Alexander Pope, sort of, the big man on campus in poetry in English lit at that time. He did a translation of the Odyssey and the Iliad, and they were like in Hallmark card rhymes. Like everything was a rhymed couplet, which you know, as a Shakespearean actor, a rhymed couplet can be super useful every now and then. <laughs> Hey everyone, that was the voice of Jonna Kotler. Jonna describes herself as a writer, reader, teacher, and binge watcher based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She writes fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. She also teaches, edits, and works as a book coach. Her work has been featured in the essay collection Nasty Women, in The Guardian newspaper, and New York Magazine's The Cut, among other places. There are links to her website, jonathacotler.com, in the show notes. I had a ball talking to Jana about her philosophy of teaching, her writing process, living in Amsterdam and Edinburgh. And then, of course, we get into Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey, a word I have learned that I have trouble spelling. While I had certainly heard of The Odyssey and no doubt read excerpts from it in middle school or high school, it had been years since I thought about it, and I'm pretty sure I'd never read the entire poem. Jana does a great job of bringing the poem to life for me and hopefully for you as well. And I don't mind spoiling that I, too, am now a big fan of this translation and of Emily Wilson in general. I'm excited to pick up her translation of the Iliad, which will come out later this year. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. If you stay to the end, you'll hear next month's guest give a brief preview of our April episode. Thank you to Jana for participating and for being a part of my origin story with Emily Wilson's translation of Homer's The Odyssey. Jonna Codler, welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. How are you? Oh, Michael, I'm so excited to be here. I'm I thrilled am, and happy. I am glad you are here. It is so great to see your face. Uh, for the audience, uh, where do you work? What do you do? Well, I am a lecturer at the University of New Mexico in the Honors College. And what's super cool, I think there are a lot of things that are super cool about that. But what's super cool about that to me is that I was a student in that program. I loved that program. Um, I got, I graduated with honors from college because of that program. And 
when I was a senior, I took the director out for a cup of coffee, which felt very fancy and mature. And I said, what would I have to do? (laughs) Yes, I paid for it too. It was really. Um, (laughs) I said, what would I have to do if I wanted to teach here when I grow up? And she told me several things. And I went off and did some of those things and didn't do all of those things. But when I was done, I came back and said, hey, can I work here? And she gave me a job she when was I was, there. I think I started teaching there. She was still there. She, uh, I think I started teaching there when I was like 31. So That's... I remember on my first, on my first day at work, I went in to make some photocopies and one of the other teachers kicked me out. <laughs> she was like, students aren't allowed back here. Faculty only. I was like, I'm, I'm a grown up. What did the program do for you? Oh, the program, what's amazing about it is it's an interdisciplinary honors program. So we don't teach subjects, we teach skills. So we teach better writing skills, better speaking skills, um, communication skills, presentation, all those kinds of things that you're going to use all through college, but also all through life. Um, And then we get to design our own classes. I don't teach anybody else's curriculum. I get a wild hair and I, first thing I do is write it down on a sticky note. And then I call my best friend, who's a probably the smartest person I know in the universe. And I know lots of smart people. Um, and I say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this class about bad guys and literature, like just focusing on the villains. What would you do? And she names off the books she would do. And I think of the books that I would do. My focus is literature primarily, but I also teach popular culture. So I do a lot of graphic novels and films and I teach history and philosophy. So my classes get to have all of those things together and I get to come up with anything that makes me excited. And because I'm excited about what I'm teaching and I love what I'm teaching, students get to learn from somebody who really cares about what they're doing. That's amazing. What are some of the things the director told you to go do? Oh, did you not do? (laughs) Well, she said, you're going to need to go to graduate school. And I did that many times. You're going to need to get a (laughs) PhD, (laughs) which I did not do. I don't have a PhD. I have an MA and an MFA, which you know, because we did that together. Indeed. Um, so I do have a terminal degree, but I don't have a PhD. I gotcha. What was the impetus to get the MFA? Because you were teaching going into the program, as I, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Um, what did you the hope impetus to, uh... for the... Go ahead. The, imp- uh, the impetus for the MFA was that I always wanted to do it. I wanted to do it when I was like 25 and or 22 you know, a million years ago, as my students say, in the previous century. Um, <laughs> and my parents were like, I was the, I'm a first gen college student. So nobody in my family went to college before I did. And uh, my parents were really proud of me and had really encouraged me to go to school. But also, I remember my mom saying, um, whatever you do, get a license in something. If you have a license, you'll always have a job. Oh, that's and, interesting. And so because I was like 19, I went, never. I'm not getting a license in anything, <laughs> ever. And she was probably right. Um, 
But so my parents really encouraged me, but they didn't really feel like creativity was pragmatic. And so I think I would have done an MFA straight from undergrad if I had felt like it was a real possibility for me. Oh, interesting. So what opened that door for you later? Uh, wanting Wanting to write and wanting to be creative. Well, it's like a crazy, you know, your whole life story. I was one of those little kids. I used to write stories and illustrate them and then bind them up in a little book with ribbons and stuff. I've wanted to write my whole life. And I've, I sort of have these mad crushes on writers and I, I love writing. So I never didn't write. It's just that I never thought of myself as like on the level of fancy people who were smart and getting published. I thought of it more as a hobby than, than a profession. Well, that has clearly changed. Uh, was that an evolving process or is that, would you, did you have like the lightning strike moment or when did you believe oh. that you can do this? You know, what happened is, I feel like I'm telling my story in poor chronology. I would uh, I'm make asking a, the no, question. It's not your fault. <laughs> no, I'd make a note in the margin. Try to put this in chronological order if this was a paper. Um, <laughs> I, my family and I moved to Amsterdam when my son was about 16. He was, we homeschooled him and we had traveled to Europe when he was about 12 because a really good friend gave me a great piece of advice. She said, if you ever want to take your kid to Europe, do it before they turn 13 because when they turn 13, they're assholes. So you'll you'll be at the Louvre and they'll be rolling their eyes and reading like a comic book. So we took our son when we were 12 and we went to Paris and he was so frustrated um, because he couldn't understand French. He just felt like illiterate and um, like angry. Not in a, it wasn't angry at the French. He was angry at himself for like not being able to say, could I have another glass of water or something? And so he immediately came back home and started taking French, which meant that I started taking French and we took four (laughs) years, four years of French together. And uh, he had loved Europe and my husband and I studied abroad when we were undergrads. Um, And we loved it. Yeah. Oh, together. We, my husband and I met. In ninth grade, we were on the oh. opposite side. Yeah, we were on the opposite side of um, a mock trial. And oh, oh it more got romantic pretty... than opposing sides of a mock trial. Oh my gosh, it's like total 80s rom com. Um, <laughs> and so we had studied abroad together in college, and we my, he got this opportunity to go. Uh, get a job in Amsterdam. And my son, like I said, was around 16. So we told him, hey, here's this opportunity. Here's what we've got going on. Here's life as we know it. You have veto power because you're 16 and you're about to embark on your own life. And it might be really hard for you to leave your friends and everything. You might not want to do this. So we want to go, but you have veto power. And he didn't veto us. And we all moved. We took 34 boxes. We downsized our four bedroom house, two cars, a motorcycle, got rid of everything except for 34 boxes. Wow. Yeah. We shoved three cats into 
uh, carriers and took them on the plane to Amsterdam. I know that's and miserable. We, <laughs> oh, it's the worst. I'll, I would never do it again, but I wouldn't have been able to leave them behind either. Oh, I totally get that. Yeah. So we, we all got on the plane. How long were you in Amsterdam? We were in Amsterdam about 18 months. And okay. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Please tell me if it did. Uh, have you ever stepped foot in a place and known that you absolutely hate it? I am. I don't know if I have. I set foot in Amsterdam and I was like, oh, wow. I hate this place. Wow. That's and I went fascinating. Uh, and I went, okay, give it a, uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. You're jet lagged. You're tired. It's been stressful. And like every day I woke up and went, I hate this place. It was really hard. Looking um, back on it, do you have, have you been able to pinpoint what, what was going on? What was, <laughs> what, what is it about Amsterdam? It was a bunch of things, probably not all about Amsterdam. Probably a goodly portion of it was about me. Um, <laughs> if, if you pack all your stuff up in boxes, you're still yourself when you arrive. So um, it was definitely my issue. But the Dutch are a very brusque culture. They're a very... Um, Hmm. For all your Dutch listeners, my apologies. Um, <laughs> they're super rude. They will say things to you like, oh, Michael, you're wearing a blue shirt. It looks very bad on you. Blue's not a good color. <laughs> and you're like, hello, have we met? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I actually, one of the first big pieces that I published talked about how I was treated by the Dutch. So I really didn't like it. I had gone from uh, running a theater and teaching and teaching my son. I had a really busy full life. I went from that to not being able to find a job. Um, so it was really tough. But what happened is, and I actually wrote an article about this for a mental health magazine. What happened is I got very depressed and um, had a, I was having a bad time of it. And I decided I was going to write every day. Because like I said, I had always written stuff. I've, my husband and I collaborated on um, a four issue run of comic books that we wrote. And we wrote seven short films and a feature film together. So we had written for a long time. But like I said, never professionally, I never tried to publish anything. I, I self published a lot of stuff. Um, and I just thought, Every day, so that I have something that is mine, I'm going to write. And I did this thing where I bought a box of paper clips. And every day that I wrote, I linked one paper clip to the last one. Um, as like this oh, physical okay. manifestation of what I was doing. That's fantastic. It, so It was like physically present. It was super useful. Did the rest of the family feel similarly about Amsterdam, or how did you broach that? Because that had to be a it had to be a sinking feeling to get there, realize immediately you hate it, but you guys have just now settled here. Oh my gosh, our ha our house was gone, our cars were gone, my job was gone, everything. Um, my husband had a better time of it because he had a job. Um, 
he had things to do and, you know, felt useful. My son had a harder time because it was harder than he anticipated to be away from all of his friends. And it was harder than he could have ever expected to have me be bummed out all the time. So yeah, that was a tough time. Um, I believe you. But I, yeah, but I did that thing where I just added one paperclip after another paperclip. And, you know, there are four of them in a line. And I made a rule for myself. I'm not allowed to um, add a paperclip or keep going if I miss a day. So if I missed a day, I had to take them all apart and start over at zero. Wow. Is that a method you still use? Because that's kind of amazing. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't use that method. Although sometimes I think I should because it is really <laughs> useful. I'm thinking um, but so I just, need that. it's so great. I think uh, Jerry Seinfeld used to do that when he was writing before he was famous. He used to, he didn't do paper clips, but he wrote on a calendar he'd mark through it and if he ever missed a day he would go back to zero um yeah, the whole idea but yeah is so to i keep the streak going right keep that's the streak going keep and that i streak going. and that for me that was really my my job that was what i was doing with myself and so i kept the streak going and some days i would write like writing sucks <laughs> i am terrible at it i hate paper <laughs> and i'd go okay i wrote something and sometimes I would show up somewhere. I'd go to a coffee shop or something. Not the coffee shop Amsterdam kind. With the, <laughs> hey, uh, coffee shop. Yeah, not that kind, but the kind that where they serve coffee. And uh, sometimes I would write for two hours. And I'd be like, oh, my God, where'd those two hours go? Two hours I was planning to be miserable I actually got eaten up by not being miserable. Is that one of the major things that kind of helped the depression? Um, Definitely. Yeah. I, like I said, I wrote a whole article about it um, called I Wrote My Way Out, that like hamilton -y reference. So you can tell exactly when I wrote it. Um, uh, excellent. We'll, we'll put a, that, a link to that in the show notes. And the other article you're talking about was in The Cut, correct? Is that the uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's from a book called Nasty Women, which has, a, I know, it came out right after the 2016 election. And it, it has a whole cool story to it, too. Um, but yeah, it was adapted. Uh, a, an edited version was published in New York Magazine, and um, it's on, it was on Audible, and Long Reads picked it up. So that was like a big jumping place for me. But in Amsterdam, what I was doing was just making sure I wrote. And really, the seeds of what became the book that I was working on at, uh, at IAI with you that was born there. It was nothing like what I was writing, but it was those ideas first started coming out there. And what got you to Edinburgh? What got us to Edinburgh is that, that my next, son, right? yeah, that was next. We moved from Amsterdam after 18 months, like the longest 18 months of my whole life. And that's not saying Amsterdam is lovely. It has canals and tulips and amazing art. Um, I would definitely recommend that somebody go there for a weekend. I'm not sure you want to blow up your life and go there without having visited. <laughs> Pro tip. But um, yeah, I had to get out of there. And my son was getting ready to go to university. So he was applying to college. And he applied a whole bunch of places. And he's a big smarty pants. So he got into a whole bunch of places. And my husband applied for a bunch of jobs in all those places. And I got you. Were you looking back kid, at the United States as well, or was it just mostly Europe? 
mostly Europe. Um, because again, uh, we, we didn't have anything in the States. My parents were gone. My husband's parents lived in Mexico. We didn't have a lot of family. So we thought, let's make this hop to Edinburgh because that was my son's number one pick. He's a classicist. And so it's a top notch Greek and Latin program there. Um, so when he got in there, that was his, that was his number one school when he got in and my husband found a job there. We just went. Goodbye, Amsterdam. <laughs> and we moved to Edinburgh. Meant to be. Yep. And Edinburgh and is the, the place where we went as students. That's where we studied in in college. So oh, well, the place where we perfect. The place where we lived in Edinburgh was right around the corner from the place that we bought our wedding rings when we were twenty two years old. So Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And Edinburgh, I presume, because I we are Facebook friends, and I see you often post very cool Edinburgh-esque or centric things, was a much better experience, I imagine? I love Edinburgh. Um, I'm teaching a, a generative writing workshop there in May, actually. Um, okay. I try to get back as much as I can. I love it. I think we probably would have been content to stay there, except for a couple of things. Um, number one, my husband's father was ill. And so we wanted to get back to the States where we could be near him. And my son, because of the age that he was when we were leaving Amsterdam, um, he had to go to Edinburgh on a student visa instead of on a family visa. He turned 18 kind of in the middle of that. So he had to go on his own visa and his visa expired when he got his degree. And so he was going to have to go back and there was no back to go to. <laughs> we were like, sorry, right. son, we sold the house, but you go back to America and yeah. we'll stay here. Make so we way. all moved back. Yeah. Good, yeah, good luck. <laughs> Put that Greek degree to good use in America. So, so I know so. You, you guys had already been there in high school, but, and so this could refer either to high school or when you moved from Amsterdam, but was it the exact opposite feeling? Did you immediately be like, Oh, this, I love this versus. The absolutely. This yep. Absolutely. hundred percent. We took our, we took our son on a little college tour. We went and visited all the places that he got in. So that was a terrible time where we had to go to Paris and London and, uh, Scotland, all these marvelous places we had to visit. Um, but he, he loved Edinburgh. And I remember on this tour, we, we left Amsterdam and we were, we went for like a week to Edinburgh so he could see the school and visit and see if it was really where he wanted to go. And, uh, I remember sitting in the airport, just crying my eyes out. Um, I wrote a piece called crying in public because I cried all the time for like 18 months in all kinds of places. I'm crying at the supermarket because I don't know what that <laughs> <Yeah>. meat is. <laughs> I'm crying on the train because for some reason it stopped and they're making everybody get off and I don't know where I am. Um, so I, I remember crying in the airport in Edinburgh because I had to go back to Amsterdam. So getting to Edinburgh to live was like a dream come true. Did you keep the paper clips going? I didn't keep the paper. I didn't keep the paper clips going, but I uh, joined a writing class. I saw an ad for a, a organization called Write Like a Girl, 
And it had this like big empowering girl exclamation point and it had lots of extra R's in the girl. And I was like, it was inexpensive and it was meant to give to foster women's writing. And so I took it and it like the rest was history. I made a ton of really good friends. I uh, started to be connected to the writing world in Scotland. Edinburgh is the writiest town you could possibly imagine. They have the tallest monument in the world to a writer, the Walter Scott Monument. They have the only train station in the world named after a novel, Waverly Station. They love writers there. And so I felt for the first time like I was a writer, like I wasn't a a hobbyist. I was a real writer. And it was there that it was like the first time I ever got paid for something I wrote. Oh, that's an incredible feeling. Yeah. It is. So like about- I almost didn't want to cash the check, but then I did. <laughs> Just to, I get that. Um, well, let's talk about, about your teaching writing. Cause I know you teach, you edit, you are a book coach. So I'd like to hear just a little bit about all of that. Uh, uh, what is your philosophy? And when you were teaching this summer, what are you going to be teaching and how? Oh, that's really great. Uh, my teaching philosophy, I mean, I think everyone when they teach it, when they teach us, hmm, I'm an English teacher. I think everyone when they teach, uh, their philosophy in some ways comes from the way they were taught, the things that they embrace from that and the things they reject. And I had plenty of things that I embraced over the years. And as a student, I used to keep a page in the back of every notebook where I wrote down things that the professor did that I thought were wrong or dumb or annoying. (laughs) This like list of, I vow I shall never do this. And so, you know, I rejected some things. But my philosophy centers really around the idea that everyone's voice is really important. That we have, say, if you walk into a museum and you're looking at an exhibit and you come across a shaving cup and you're like, that's a shaving cup. Okay. At a particular time in history, everybody had a shaving cup, but this is the only one that's left. Suddenly something that seemed like maybe it wasn't important takes on incredible value. And I think that if we all record ourselves, if we all have a voice and show the world the way we see it, you know, history is going to sort out what voices we think are important, or sometimes history is going to do a bad job of it. And people will go back and, and try to reclaim and fix some of that history. But none of that can happen if we aren't telling our own stories. So philosophically, I want to empower writers. A lot of times I meet people who are too shy to even claim the title of writer. They say, oh, I do a little bit of writing, or I like to keep a journal, but it's nothing, or, you know, it's a small announcement of what they do, and then some sort of way of negating it. And I always say, like, I have this magic pencil, and I can dub you right now, like, King Charles could dub a knight, I can dub you a writer, and then you can have that power. Because everyone's voice is important. And we all contribute. I was just at a writing workshop last month or a couple of weeks ago. And one of the writers there, um, Ramona, Ramona Asabel, who's an IAIA teacher, 
she said that we are all in our own way contributing to the literature of our time. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's why I care about this. Because we all have a part in making what is our time. That's lovely. What does a book coach do? What does a book coach do? A book coach is partly a cheerleader. They say, I believe in you and your book is real and I see it. It's not 100% here, but I can see where you're going. I can feel the vision. And then a part teacher, like, you know how I said I could see it, but it's not quite there. Maybe if you do these four or five things, it'll be more there. And then partly an editor. They say, hey, you got a lot of stuff here, maybe too much of this. Or maybe if you moved that there, it would have more impact. You kind of do all the pieces of things to help someone realize their own vision. What does your ideal writing day look like? <sighs> oh, what a beautiful thing. Uh, my if, ideal if you were writing to ever day. Have one. <laughs> I, I don't think I've had one yet. Um, I, I think that, um, I'm just at the point in my career where I'm starting to apply for like, uh, residencies and things. I believe that my ideal writing day is like one of those days. You're surrounded by some other writers, but you're really focusing on your own work. Um, for me, there's no laundry to do. For some reason, I feel great social pressure about laundry. I'm like, oh, no, there's laundry in the basket. I'll just put a load in, and then I'll go write, and then I'll switch the load. And what happens is I just do laundry all day. (laughs) (laughs) So my ideal writing day would have no laundry in it, and it would definitely just be a day where I can um, spend many hours on my writing. Normally, I'm sneaking time in. I'm trying to get 30 minutes in at a time. I think it sounds very luxurious to set, to spend like 12 hours writing, but I don't have many of those 12 hours in a row right now. Right. Um, because of the teaching, because family, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yes, uh, for sure. Do you write longhand? Do you use a computer? Do you use a typewriter? Oh my gosh. Oh, you can. (laughs) I know. I have have a little typewriter right over my head. You can see it. Um, I write longhand, which is like completely archaic. It's not as though I do not have a computer. I find that I hit something. I hit a place when I'm writing by hand. Um, I, I hit the magic place faster. I don't know, Michael, do you have a magic place where like something clicks and it's almost like somebody else is telling you what to write or it's just flowing through you without you even thinking about it too much? You look back on it later and you're like, whoa, that was good. Way to go. Whoever wrote that. It wasn't me. I just jotted it down. Yeah. And I think that that word flow, what you talked about is kind of what it feels like to me. And it's honestly, it's it's a very similar, at least it is for me. And I know you're you're a theater person as well. Uh, when you're on stage and you're just in a scene and before you know it, the scene's over because all you've been, you were just super present and you were just bouncing off the other actor and you're like, what the hell just happened? So that'll happen occasionally, not nearly as enough uh, with the writing as well. Uh, If I think that's probably a similar kind of thing you're, you're talking about. 
Yeah, totally. I, I feel that exactly. And it, it has some of that relationship to performing in the same way that when you're acting and you can hear the audience, you kind of feed off of their energy. You can tell when a joke is landing. You can tell to do it a little bigger because they like it or a little smaller because they're not responding. Um, I feel that same way when I'm writing by hand. Um, it's like things are are moving off of each other. The last sentence really propels the next sentence. Or I'll remember that I wrote something up here that I should call back to down here. That same kind of ebb and flow that you get in performing. And I will only touch the surface of the nerddom that we could go down with this next question, but <gasps> what kind of pen do you write with? Oh, what a dark I am. I love fountain pens. I love, love, love them. And um, I'm like a serial monogamist with fountain pens. <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I will get obsessed with one particular kind and then I will buy like 20 of them and I will have one everywhere and I will use them. And then one day, like a capricious lover, I'll just decide <laughs> I don't like that kind of pen anymore. <laughs> and I'll put them in a box in the closet and then I'm onto a new brand of pen. I have many very expensive fancy pens. And then I, my primary writing is usually with some cheap, like $15 pen. What pen is uh, currently in favor? Oh, currently in favor is the Pilot Kakuno. It's this Japanese pen. It's really light. It's plastic. You can get a million different cartridges for it, or you can fill it from ink bottles, of which I also have a million. Um and I think it's actually, if it, if we were in Japan, it would be like a child's pen. <laughs> it would be for like little children learning how to write, but it's light and fast. And what I like about them is um, fountain pens write really quickly. And if I'm in that flow, I can barely keep up with the ideas as I'm, as they're going. And that the, the object that I'm writing with doesn't inhibit me. Um, and then the cheapness, like, somewhere between five and $15 for a cheapo pen. Um, that means if I lose it, I'm not devastated. Like I got a really beautiful pen for graduation from my family, sort of my dream pen. And I love it. And I use it for special things, but I would die if I lost it. I feel terrible. What so is that for? Pen? Oh, it is a Mont Blanc Meisterstruck. And I know we're on the radio, but I'll show it to you. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful black pen with the fancy Mont Blanc thing at the top, and it cost way too much money. And oh, it looks gorgeous. It was though. really nice that my family did it for me. What ink are you using right now? Oh. Do you also switch inks? Like, uh, oh. Like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm an ink slut. Um, I will. Well, in the little cheap pilot pens i'm using pilot cartridges which are they just come in a box and they're i try not to have any pen have the same color ink because what's really nice is if i stop when i'm writing and i pick up with a different color it makes it really clear when a session is ended and it helps me to kind of make things flow together better i think um, and then in, does that as well I think I probably read that somewhere and decided that that would be a powerful thing to do in my life. <laughs> I actually, perfect. I can tell you, 
ritual, right? Like baseball, like I'm not going to break a streak if something's working. Um, one of the good things I did in Amsterdam, like I have a small list of that would fit in the size of a child's hand. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I got to do when I was in Amsterdam was see Neil Gaiman. He apparently like has family there. And so he frequently goes to this place in the Netherlands to sign. And it was in a public library and there were only like 30 people. And I actually got to meet Neil Gaiman. And that was a big day for me. And then I did what I always do when I meet a writer. I just said something stupid. (laughs) I was like, oh, you like books. Something just like... (laughs) Like I, I've thought of this day for years, and then what I did was say something dumb. And my son was right behind me in the signing line, and he engaged with him in like human speech, thoughtfully. <laughs> and I was like, "I like rain." I mean, it was just uh, my mind went completely blank. But that was one of my very small list of great things that I did when I was in Amsterdam <laughs> with C. Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Uh, Do you want to talk about your current work in progress? Sure, absolutely. Um, I worked, I did this program called The Book Project at Lighthouse Writers in Denver. And one of the teachers there, Erica Krauss, says that you should always have a wife and a mistress when you're writing, uh, which would be uh, probably gender weird and we can switch all those things around. But we could say uh, you always want to have a primary work and then a secondary work to visit on the sly. And so my primary work is the novel that I'm finishing up from um, our MFA. And then I have a little thing, two little things I'm working on on the side when the, the main project gets too daunting. So that if I get to the page and I'm like, I actually have 30 minutes to write. And then I think, I don't have anything else to say in this book. <laughs> Isn't it done yet? I can go visit one of the other ones and get something done. So my primary work is called Postscript. And it's a book about, it's a book about books. It's a book about what books mean to us and how we, how we have relationships with books that strengthen our relationships with people. So it's a narrative about a young woman who is, unexpectedly widowed at a really early age and how she deals with that and the way that she deals with it she's really deeply in grief and the way that she deals with it is she finds a book of world war one poems and it's as if they were written for her they speak to her and they talk to her about grief and loss and they they seem to understand what nobody else understands about how profound her grief is and well, having gotten to read several uh, excerpts from it in the process, I'm uh, I, I'm very excited for this book to come out. Uh, me too. Let's have that happen. <laughs> <laughs> where are you in the process? Are you I'm, close to submission? Are you where? How? Where? Where are you? Now? I am. I'm pretty deep in revision. I have at the end of the MFA, where working with Pam Houston, which was amazing. Um, I added a third character. It's uh, or a third point of view character. Um, so there's this main character, the young woman who is grieving. Her grief causes something extraordinary to happen in the afterlife. And um, 
brings back this, the, the poet who wrote the World War I poems, brings him back to life in this sort of writer's afterlife. And he has to navigate his massive imposter syndrome living around all these writers that he studied in school, basically. Um, and he's a dork. So clearly he's a character I, uh, I understand. He <laughs> meets, he meets his heroes and he's like, Oh, can't think of a thing to say is dumb and embarrassing. And, um, he, he tries to navigate his way through. And then I added just recently thinking I was pretty much done. I added right at the end of the MFA, the character of his wife who lives, who outlives him by about 50 years and who has a totally different experience, but also an experience with those poems. That's awesome. I'm, I'm very, very excited. Oh, um, thanks. Just a couple more questions because I know we want to get to the Odyssey. Uh, what's your favorite Shakespeare play? I know you're very familiar with <laughs> him. I'm curious. I'll, I'll give you a, a backup to a one and a two, if you like. Um, oh, oh, I feel okay, Shakespeare. Sorry, I apologize. I have to say, uh, my students always ask me, what's your favorite? And I say, oh, I contain multitudes. But <laughs> I honestly can say I, I've been in several Shakespeare plays. I've directed a lot of Shakespeare plays. Um, I always go back to A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's amazing how relevant it is how much changing just a few things like costuming can modernize it really easily and how much unlike a lot of Shakespeare's plays how much Midsummer is still deeply funny um, Shakespeare was a big brain head and he knew a lot of Latin and Greek and a lot of his humor in his comedies comes from like wordplay and puns that only work if you know Latin. <laughs> and so when you try to perform them in a modern context, they're not funny. Like the words themselves don't make you laugh. Usually the actors do a lot of great physical stuff and the blocking can support the words, but the words themselves don't always work in the way that they did for Shakespeare's time. And Shakespeare, you know, he himself wasn't above having pitching high for the people who would get the joke and pitching low for the people who think farts are funny, which let's admit we're, we all think farts are funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, uh, Midsummer is just funny. It has a lot of situations that make people laugh. So I love that. And then I guess if I were going to go with the two, it's Hamlet. Um, it's just, it's Shakespeare at the top of his game. He's really firing on all cylinders. He's, he gives us a, a protagonist that we really associate with, that we can connect with, but that we're also deeply frustrated with. And you can sort of watch, if you watch great performances, like on um, streaming or something, if you watch, you can see how each Hamlet, it represents the time period of the actor. So, you know, an Olivier Hamlet spoke to his time period. If we look at it now, it sometimes looks a little silly and poncy, even if the words are amazing. Branagh's Hamlet in the mid-90s or 96, something like that, um, it absolutely 
owned that particular time of our history. We could sit in the 90s because the world wasn't quite as scary as it is now. We would sit for all four hours of every word of Hamlet and just let Kenneth Branagh do his thing. If you look at um, like the 80s, the Mel Gibson Hamlet, we call that lethal Hamlet at my house. Um, <laughs> like oh, it's absolutely. short. It's, it's Zeffirelli directed it. It's, it's cut down really short. It's the good parts version of Hamlet. And it just goes beat to beat to beat with not much reflection. Or if you look at David Tennant's Hamlet, it's very 2000s. Um, he's got a lot of angst and a lot of modernity to him. So, you know, we're always, Shakespeare lets us have the opportunity to express our own world in the way we perform him. So cool. those well, would be my two. Those are, that's excellent. That's excellent. One more question, then we'll get to uh, we'll get to the Odyssey. Uh, who, what, what modern writers, contemporary writers that are out now that you you make sure? Just give me one or two that you read. If they have a book coming out, you get it and you're going to read it. Oh, Is there somebody you're currently wow. in love with? Oh, I'm currently in love with Stephen Graham Jones. I think he just is amazing. He he takes a lot of tropes of horror and he turns them on their side. He gives us a kind of horror that again, really fits with the world that we live in. Um, but he clearly knows the genre really well. So he can tug on all the old things that made horror exciting and at the same time, make them really modern. And then he does this thing where on top of being just sort of a master of genre, he's also incredibly literary. So if you want to enjoy him on this like, ah, monsters level, you totally can. But if you want to probe it a little, you're like, wow, he's made some incredible structural changes to how we expect a novel to go. Or he's made this crazy assertion with the way he does person, first person and third person. Um, he's exploring this idea of identity and he never gives us the main character's name because the main character isn't sure who he is. So until he's sure who he is, we don't get to know who he is. Like, so Stephen Graham Jones, I'll read anything if it's, he's brilliant. He's fantastic. Can you tell somebody uh, a good place to start? Would you, I would say the only good Indians, but what would you, where would you start somebody with Stephen Graham? Jones? Oh, the only good Indians is great. I love mongrels. It's his, it's his werewolf book, and I actually teach it to freshmen um, in a class called Myth and Magic. And uh, they find it challenging, but in the best way. So when you're teaching a book like that, what, what, is, what are you teaching? Well, the kinds of classes that we do in, in my program in honors um, are all Socratic seminars. So imagine, you know, King Arthur's round table, how nobody had a fancier seat than anybody else. We sit in a circle. My ideas aren't more important than my students' ideas. I'll pose questions and sometimes they take one of my questions and roll with it. And sometimes they go, wow, that was a question. But what I'm interested in is, <laughs> so we really try to explore the book or the poem, or whatever it is we're studying, the film, the graphic. Um, we try to explore it from 
a sort of Socratic probing, questioning, what does this make us think? How does this make us feel? How does this relate to other things that have come before it? What does it owe its greatness to? What do we think it's dropped the ball on? Um, questioning, questioning. And and that style of learning, I mean, it's Socratic, so we know it's it's been around a while. We didn't invent it or anything. <laughs> Um, but my master's degree, before I got my MFA, my master's is from St. John's College, and it's an entirely Socratic great books program. And I actually applied for it when my son was like a year and a half old. I applied for it because I realized I'd never read the Iliad or the Odyssey. Somehow I had gotten through a liberal arts education and done really well, but I had stuck to say the middle ages onward. And I was like, I really ought to know this stuff. So I applied <laughs> to this degree and um, I did the four semesters of the degree and it's, it's a great books program and it's, it's a liberal arts degree. So you don't do a subject. It's not like I was an English major there. You do literature, philosophy, theology, math and science. That was an exciting semester for me. Um, history, you you do it by um, subject matter, but you, you study all different kinds of texts. It's a great education. It sort of ends at Jane Austen. She's, I think Sappho and Jane Austen are the only two women on the curriculum or were when I was a student. So it's definitely not uh, 100% well-rounded, but it it really formed in me this idea that questioning the text is our job. And one of the unique things about it, the program, is that you, um, you're you never taught a class, or you don't really think of it as teaching. You never have a class leader who is teaching something that's their specialty. So if you have, you're working with someone who has a PhD from Yale in philosophy, they're doing the math class. They're outside of their comfort zone, and you're all made equal and really learning together. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I couldn't ask for a better uh, segue than you wanting to go apply because you had not read the Lady of the Odyssey. So oh, we will take a break. Like we ripped this. That's right. We will be right back. Hey, everyone. Just a quick break to let you know that we are going to be discussing the Odyssey in the next segment. Uh, so lots of spoilers there, plot-wise, thematically, etc. I don't think it's as critical as last month with F for Fake. Uh, to have seen the film before listening to this part of the podcast, but I will definitely leave it in your hands. Uh, if you'd like to pause it uh, until later, uh, that would certainly be appropriate, but I don't think you're going to uh, to miss out on too much if you're not completely familiar with it uh, beforehand. So without further ado, here we are back with our conversation with Jonna Cutler. So why did you want to introduce me to The Odyssey? I wanted to introduce you to the Odyssey because I want to introduce everyone to the Odyssey. <laughs> it's like one of my life missions, I think. Um, I think I first read like an excerpt from the Odyssey in a high school English class. And it was in that, remember when you would get like a literature book and it would just say literature on the front and it would have everything <laughs> in it. And you would have to go home and cut up a paper bag <laughs> to make a cover for it so you wouldn't hurt it. Gosh, I forgot all about that. 
isn't it wild? And you could put stickers on the bag or something, whatever you wanted to decorate it or draw on it. But you had to go home that first week of school and fold up paper bags to cover your book. So I think the first ex- exposure I had to the Odyssey was in a, it was almost, almost like a summary of the Odyssey because it wasn't in poetry. It was written like it was a prose story. And so, you know, Odysseus goes and pokes out the Cyclops eye and here are the names of the Greek gods and here's that there's a quiz on Tuesday. Like, like that was my first exposure to the Odyssey. And I don't feel like from that day I would have gone, it will be my mission in life to share this with the world. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, oh, just something you read and you had to learn that Hestia kept the flame in the hearth. Like, not a Not a life-changing experience. Right. I think that is probably the intro that I had as well. I'm sure we touched on it and I, it's hard to tell what's separating what I actually remember learning from that or what is just in popular culture because it is so influential in Western life, Western cultural life. Um, so I yeah, feel like it, certainly we do. This is the first time I've definitely read it though. Oh, well, I'm going to, before I say anything else, I'll say, did you like it? I did like it. I did like that. I'm not sure that I got it all, but that's where we're going to work on that right now. Okay. <laughs> and, um, so why this particular translation? Because you did specify this translation. So I'm curious about that. I well. specified this translation. It's the Odyssey Homer translated by Emily Wilson. And it's, it's the translation of our time. Like I can definitely see here I am chatting. The theme coming out of today's class kids is that we can only speak about our own time, right? So you could read a different translation of the Odyssey. You can, it's almost like having a time travel machine. Because if you go back and read like 17th ish century poet Alexander Pope, sort of the big man on campus in poetry in English lit at that time, he did a translation of the Odyssey and the Iliad, and they were like in. Hallmark card rhymes. Like everything was a rhymed couplet, which you know as a Shakespearean actor, a rhymed couplet can be super useful <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> Get on the stage. <laughs> but if you're going to read a bunch of them in a row, you're going to go crazy. Um, so, like, his translation was really of his time. It was super popular. But I would never subject students to that now. They, would, they wouldn't read it they would all fake it, read the Wikipedia summary and kind of pretend through the class period. Right. So, okay. So for me, the class that I teach this in is called the legacy of myth and magic. And a legacy is our semester, our first semester class that freshmen take in honors. And again, I'll say we teach skills. We're trying to teach fundamental skills that students will need, but we get to teach whatever we want. And a legacies course's point is to, to sort of show us what the vestiges are in our culture of things that have been influential. So for me, the Odyssey, super important. If you're going to talk about mythology, if you're going to talk about magic, this in Western culture is kind of the beginning point. So I always like to teach it. I have taught it before. I've taught different translations of it. Again, I'm a serial flirt when it comes to translations. And the thing about translations is it's like 
when you read a book that's in your own language, you're getting a pretty close approximation of what the author meant, right? It's in words that you know. You might have to look up the occasional word. If you're reading somebody really fancy, you might have to look up a bunch of words. But generally speaking, they're talking to you in things that you understand, that you don't need footnotes to get, right? When you're reading a book in another language, it's like you're reading it and you're wearing a veil. And so it's hard to make all the words out because there's someone between you and the text. It's the language and the person who translated that language, the way that they chose words, the way that they might express something like um, you could talk about a door, but you might talk about it as a portal or a, um, an entrance. Those would both be words you could translate door as, but that's a choice that they make. And a translation, when you're reading it, is the sum of all of the choices the translators made, plus all of the things that the author was saying, plus all of the things that you don't understand because this happened thousands of years ago. So it gets harder and harder to get to what is important. And a good translation, and a translation that really sings for your time period, can take away some of those obfuscations get you closer to what the text really was. And Emily Wilson does that. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was, uh, I was expecting it to be difficult to read and it was not, you know, it, uh, I don't know if, I don't, again, I have not read other translations, so I don't know if that's a choice uh, or if that's part of like the design of what she was attempting to, to do when she did that or not. Uh, but I was expecting it to, to be a slog and it was, you know, it moves. It does move. It's like it moves because it's the structure of how we have taught our brains to take story in, right? It's like a foundational way of how story should be told. And it's the thing that like, where's the groove in your brain where you're like, Oh, the hero's journey, all those things that you learn in school. This is where they began. So it really does move when it's translated in a way that lets it move. And different times like different things. Um, when I was in grad school, I read, I, I tried to stick when I was studying and then later when I was teaching my son, I tried to stick to a single translator of, of say, Greek, because then you're building a vocabulary with that translator. I read the Richmond Lattimore when I was in grad school, and he like wants to capture all of the epicness of Greek, all of the fanciness of the poetry, all of the loftiness and the sort of glory that the language had. And so his versions are very lofty. They're beautiful. It's a different reading experience. Um, so, so I feel like picking a translation that speaks to students means that the Odyssey will speak to them. And this Wilson one is just really modern. It's not as if she choose, she, she like dumbs it down. It's not a Cliff Notes version for those of us who are old enough to remember Cliff Notes. Those yellow covers with the black lines and you would try to hide them in your bag so your teacher wouldn't know that you were reading the summary of the Odyssey, which you can now get in like two seconds on your phone. Um, 
they had this sort of illicit, almost pornographic need to be hidden. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Study AIDS. Um, Like, uh, so if you're, if you get something that's lively speaking to you, then it's, you're not going to depend on that. You're going to just read the text. And the thing about the Odyssey is it wasn't fancy and lofty at its time. It was pop culture. It was the stories people wanted to hear about the heroes that they liked. When I teach it, I always talk about how this is like the, the Iliad is like the Avengers movie. It's where all the big heroes come together and we're seeing them interact together. The Odyssey is just like when Iron Man gets a movie all by himself. We're just looking at one heroes. And sometimes he refers to all the guys he knows. So he might bring up Thor or Captain America. He's not in the movie or he's in it in a tiny way. It's really (laughs) Iron Man's movie. The Odyssey is Odysseus's solo movie. When he's in the Iliad, he's part of a super team. And we have to think about... Go ahead. No, that's just a great way to explain it. To, to any to you know to me but certainly to your students I imagine as well yeah I, mean, I think it just helps us realize that people wanted this story because it was fun they wanted to know what was going to happen next to Odysseus they wanted to know what's going to happen to his son oh no is Penelope going to have to marry one of those guys like it was all enjoyment based they were waiting for the next episode. Like we were, well, for me today, I'm waiting to watch The Mandalorian today. Like what happens next with Grogu? I need to know. That was what it was like for them. The fact that we study it now and we have to have footnotes and endnotes and all those kinds of things, it's just because it's old. It's all the way back to that shaving cup I was talking about, right? It's so remote from us. And yet it's so, it's, its presence is so significant that we want to kind of try to figure it out, but we need context because I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who uses a bristle and shaving cup and foams up their face. You know, like everybody uses an electric razor. Now you have to have a bunch of context to understand what a cup for shaving really is. Right. Right. And that's. So, so there's a couple of different ways we can approach this. I I, yeah. I want to ask you a couple of questions of, of choices that I think that she has made and, and see what if that's part of the appeal uh, with you on this. But I'm also curious of just what parts of the story really resonate with you. Like when you read it and reread it, what 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 are you getting out of certain segments? Or is it the whole, you know, shebang that is like that kind of makes you keep coming back to it? Okay, cool. Do you want to do the individual things first or the shebang first? Let's do the uh, let's do some let's do the individual things first. Actually, no, let's Great. do the shebang. Makes more sense. Yeah, that's, you tell me. You're the better teacher than I am. That's for sure. Uh, Which well, one would be better? We can talk about the shebang. Um, uh, it's a great story. Like we think of old stories as being old stories. They're boring and they are talk about people doing stuff we don't care about. This is about a guy who has a smart mouth who gets himself into trouble because he acts like a jerk and he gets punished for it. And he, all he's trying to do is get home. 
And if you have ever like lost your luggage, your flight was canceled, you have to run from one end of the terminal to another to try to catch a different flight, like that story of journey, we we all tell it all the time, whether it's your commute to work and we talk about how crappy it was or your trip abroad, telling the story of getting from one place to another place is something really fundamental that we love and enjoy. And that's what Odysseus is trying to do. He's trying to get home. He's been at war for 10 years, fighting a battle that they thought they'd never win. He personally ended the war by being really smart-mouthed and clever. (laughs) So generally, this has worked for him. He's surprised that it isn't working for him in this situation. Um, He's ended the war. He has a boatload, literally, a fleet load of treasure. He just wants to get home and see his wife and see his kid. When he left, uh, this isn't in the poem of the Odyssey itself, but Odysseus tried really hard not to go to this war. The reason, there are a lot of reasons for the Trojan War, but one of the reasons that everybody has to go to the Trojan War is because Odysseus made them swear a pact. We'll swear this bond that if Not everybody gets to marry Helen of Troy. Only one dude gets to marry her. And we all want to marry her. But whoever marries her, everybody else will swear that if anything happens, they'll protect him. And, you know, by extension, her. She's just a girl, whatever. Um, So he makes all these guys swear this pact. And then Helen goes off to Troy. Either she's stolen by a bad guy, Paris, who takes her away from her loving husband, or she has an affair with him and uh, wants to leave her loving husband, who's kind of a jerk. (laughs) Either way, it has different origin stories. But either way, she's in a different place. And Odysseus's own idea now makes it so that he has to go to war. He has Telemachus, who's his son, is an infant. He's a baby, like barely born, just a tiny thing. and. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to leave his family. And it's his own idea that got him there. And he tries not to. Again, this isn't in the Odyssey. This comes from the myth. But he um, he does this thing where all the guys are coming to pick him up. They've sent him a, a message. Come on, Odysseus, you have to come. And he's like, <laughs> ignored the message like we all do when we get a text. Um, mm-hmm. And he he does this thing where the guys show up because he hasn't been answering their messages and he ruffles up his hair and he puts on weird clothes and he takes his plow and he starts plowing his field in all these crazy patterns so that when they get there and they see him, they'll think, Oh, Odysseus went crazy. We don't want him to go with us. He's not sane. And to prove that he's crazy, he's plowing, plowing, plowing really crazily. And, Agamemnon, who's sort of the leader of this war band going to Troy, picks up Odysseus's baby son and sets him down in front of the plow. And Odysseus isn't crazy, and he isn't going to plow over his newborn son just to prove that he isn't going to go to war, because the reason that he wants to not go is because of his son, right? He wants to be with his wife and child. So he stops short, it proves that he's sane and he has to go to war. And that's like among the last times he sees his baby, right? Telemachus mm-hmm. has never known his father and Odysseus has never known his son. And he wants to get home. 
And I think we can all relate to it. It's basically trains, planes, and automobiles, right? <laughs> Terrific <laughs> movie about, please let me get home where I need to go. Yeah. So that's uh, the shebang. It's a great story. Awesome. Uh, a couple of interesting things, or at least I found them interesting and did not expect it going in. Um, it doesn't really start with Odysseus traveling, which I thought was odd. <laughs> What's going on with that? Right? The cover of the book says, The Odyssey, Homer. <laughs> and then right. we start out book one, and it's all about what's happening at his house. It's all about his son and what his son's doing. And it goes that way for four books. I assign those four books together, and um, my students read them, and they usually come to class and they go like, where's Odysseus? Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's Telemachus, and why do we care about all of this? And that's one of the narrative things about this book that's so amazing. Like, this is a poem. It's about finding out if this guy's going to make it home. And, I mean, here's the thing. Spoiler alert. We don't think in Iron Man that Tony Stark's going to die, right? We know there's going to be an Iron Man 2 and an Iron Man 3. He's not going to die for a long time. So he has a sort of script immunity. Odysseus has a sort of script immunity. People who were listening to this story knew that he was going to make it. So it's not a, it's not a whodunit, it's a howdunit, right? It's right. not, is he going to make it home? It's how is he going to do it? So... The poet here is giving us these four books about Telemachus, this, his son who's now like almost 21 years old, right? Because Odysseus was gone for 10 years of the Trojan War and then 10 more years to get home. So when we meet Telemachus in the first books, he's kind of supposed to be a grown man already. He should be growing up and getting married. And he's not, right? He... When I ask my students how old they think he is, they think like 13, 15. Mm. He acts like a kind of whiny teenager, right? Yeah, he does. Which makes you think makes you think a little bit about Hamlet, right? You're like, oh, Hamlet's a whiny teenager. Wait, he's 35? <laughs> okay, <laughs> come on. It's time for you to grow up, bud. So we get the sensation that Telemachus and Penelope and everybody at home are getting for four books, while we're waiting to see what happens, we're wondering, where's Odysseus? So the structure of the poem itself is carrying out the theme. It's oh, hard to be away. From, it's brilliant. It's hard to be away from home. And where is this guy? All we want is for him to come home. We, the audience, want that too. That makes sense. Um what did you think about Emily Wilson's choice? Because, because this is an epic poem and I forgot what it's in, but you, you may or may not know the name. You probably know the name of it, but I don't want to put you on the spot either. Like the, it's a 10, 10 meter poem, like a Deca something, something was like what it was in, in Greek. Yeah. Right. It's in, yeah, it's in hexameter, which is a weird, like six line construction that we don't do at all in English poetry. There's like, if you were going to find the line of hexameter in English poetry, I think the closest thing you could come up with is the Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever. Oh, really? You remember how it goes like, picture yourself. Like it has this kind of plodding rhythm that sounds really okay. foreign 
that's the closest thing to what that would sound like, I think. Okay. I so wish I had my son to... in here because he's really good. And he can <laughs> tell us for sure. <laughs> she chose to do it in iambic pentameter, which is right. a different choice than other translations have made. What did you think of that choice? Did you? I I loved it because iambic pentameter is English. That's the way that our language is metered. So Shakespeare, he's writing an an, an iambic pentameter. But really, regular English speech, the way that we tend to talk and inflect things, is pretty much in iambic pentameter. I mean, it's not in pentameter because we're not doing exactly five syllables. um, But the stress of the language is pretty much the same. So if you say... I really like my new iPhone. It's pretty much iambic. It's how we speak. And so she's she's doing this thing, taking the vernacular of the Greeks, this hexameter, and it's a fancy thing. It's not like the vernacular regular people always talked in it, but she's taking the poetic idea of the Greek and translating it structurally into the poetic sound of English. And since she's translating from Greek to English, she makes that assertion that this is how it sounds. Sounds right to us. Very cool. Because if we were if we were reading like thousands of lines in the same meter as Strawberry Fields Forever, we're out, we're reading the Wikipedia summary. <laughs> we're faking our way through class. Gotcha. Uh another thing she did, which I thought was interesting, is that she is the length of her translation is the exact same length of the Greek, which apparently is not normally done. Uh, what did you think of that? And how I does that just, affect everything? I think if I were in a line at a book signing and I met Emily Wilson, I would go, Oh, the weather. I like books. I think she's so brilliant. Um, Again, a translation is trying to do its best to give us the sense of what the author really meant. The idea in a translation is that we, the translator's invisible. That's the ideal, right? That you're yeah. getting a direct conduit to the, to the piece itself. And that's impossible. Everybody has biases and prejudices and ticks and choices that they want to make and assertions. So the translator's always there. I think she's just done a really great job of giving us a sense of what the book would really have been like. Right, because that's the actual length of it was the the same then. Therefore, the pacing is the same. Therefore, it's not. And I think I saw where she talked about how you know, a lot of translation, translations or translators, translators, will uh, <laughs> like hedge their bets. Like, you know, because this is a complicated Greek word. You could choose three or four English words that would kind of be similar. And therefore, sometimes you pick one or two or two or three to, to kind of hedge your bets almost. And that this kind of tool not only did it help with the pacing, but it also helped her kind of make a choice uh, yeah. and along that, which I thought that was kind of brilliant. Yeah, I think she's just, I have a big crush on her. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was surprised that part of the story what I consider the story of, of the Odyssey is told by Odysseus telling somebody else what happened, like in this kind of weird, long flashback kind of thing. I have no idea. Uh, Again, can you talk about that like, a little bit? 
yeah, again, like structural brilliance. We tend to think of old things. The older something is, the simpler it is. The more sophisticated we get over time. But this is like a Tarantino Pulp Fiction level of arrangement of the story, right? We get um, we get the whole part, four books with Telemachus. We get a bit of what's happening to Odysseus when he finally gets to get on his way after all this time he's been stalled. And then when he washes up on the shore with the Asians, they ask him, hey, who are you? What's your deal, man? And he says, let me tell you a story. And he tells the story in chronological order as it happened to him. But if we, I always do this big timeline on the board in class. If we're going to rearrange things, like the first thing that happens to him is when he goes to to Aeolus and he gets the cool bag of wind that is going to help propel him home really fast, right? Because he's cool and everybody's proud of him for being so smart and he's going to, He's going to get to go home. That's the first linear event if we were going to start at the beginning and make it go straight. But he doesn't tell it that way. He tells it in the order where it has emotional resonance, right? And he tells the story like 50 times, right? If when he, I was, uh, Athena always gives him these cool makeovers where he gets to be taller or handsomer or his hair is more beautiful or he's weird and old and ugly and smelly and gross. Like she gives him a makeup or a make down depending on the situation. And he often, because Odysseus is not a trusting kind of guy, right? He's often testing people to see if he can trust them. And he will, when he's testing them, tell a version of his story, right? I knew a guy once who, or I heard a guy who said Odysseus, like he's very aware that he's the narrator of this. So in a, in a modern interpretation, in a, that kind of meta way that we like to play with story now, you can decide, and my students love to decide this, you can decide that Odysseus is an unreliable narrator. He's telling the story of the Odyssey, but he might be lying because he's a liar, right? He gets epithets. Epithets are those cool little things that they do in Greek that give us a description of the character. So we might get gray-eyed goddess Athena or a million times in this, you got the rosy fingers of dawn, which help us to figure out how many days have passed, right? Um, you get all these epithets. Odysseus's epithet is always like Lord of Lies, big Mr. Pants on Fire. <laughs> we, we get these things that tell us and reinforce to us constantly that he's a liar. So it's entirely possible that he's made up the whole story of the Odyssey. And I like to play with that idea. So in the poem itself, right, that it is the exact same language repeated every single time. And then what does she do in the translation? Because this is when I was listening to her talk about it, it was talked about almost like, yes, she's translating, but she's also doing creative writing also. Right. She's interpreting, which is always what a translator does. And I think for the interpretation, um, I'm going to go back to that Rosy Fingers of Dawn example. Okay. Because you often get, when a new day starts in the poem, dawn with her rosy fingers crosses the sky. Rosy-fingered dawn crosses the sky with her pink glory. You know, like A lot of different ways that Wilson translates this particular phrase, which means dawn is a goddess, and she 
is waking up the world for the day. She's going to hand that job once the once the sky's nice and pink. She's going to hand that job over to Helios, who's the guy who has the chariot that has the sun in it. And he's going to make the sun come up over the sky and give us all the times of day, noon to nighttime, right? And that's Dawn's job, is to get up really early in the morning and put the <laughs> coffee on, basically. And I got that. And that expression is in the poem so many times that it, it almost gets like frustratingly repetitive, right? Yeah, it's You're almost like, like 20, 20 times, I think, is that... Yeah, and there are only 24 books, right? (laughs) So it happens (laughs) all the time. A lot. All the time, over and over. Um, And it's really important to giving us a sense of time because, like I said, the poet has Tarantinoed. It's all out of order. And we're... Right. There's there's literally a, like, meanwhile, back at Ithaca, Telemachus is on a boat and the suitors are waiting to murder him. No. Yeah, because things so, take a while. Like he's trapped for like a year. Like it's you know, like like they're they're playing with time in that way also. Yeah. So, so he he isn't like on the road for ten years straight. He gets marooned a couple of times with hot ladies who want to keep him. Yeah. And he struggles yeah, in vain to anyone who Athena loved. Right. That's right. He struggles in vain against his gorgeous goddess captors, and eventually makes his way home. <laughs> Oh, I have one more thing, sorry, about Please. the rosy fingers of Dawn. So, like, it, it gets repetitive. And Wilson, um, she jazzes it up and gives us some different interpretations. But there's something really important about it. Do you remember the part where Odysseus and Penelope at the end are finally together again? He tested her. She tested him back with the way that their bed frame is built. They're, like, checking back and forth to make sure they can really trust each other. And they finally get to, to go to bed together. It's been 20 years since they've gotten to sleep together. And Athena does this amazing thing. She holds back the dawn so that the night is longer for them, so that they have time to tell each other their stories. Penelope gets to tell her favorite story about how she was really smart and wove that shroud and unwove it and the dumb boys couldn't figure that out. Odysseus tells a slightly edited version of his story where he doesn't mention all the goddesses he was spending time with. (laughs) Um, They make love. They are together. And after reinforcement, after reinforcement of the rosy fingers of dawn, Athena stops dawn and makes the night extra long for them. And it's this incredible moment where, again, lovely, and I completely missed it. (laughs) It's it's okay. Don't worry. I've read this like a lot now, (laughs) and I'm there. There are whole things that I don't get, whole things that I don't understand when I read it or ask questions of my son who reads Greek. He's like, "Oh, oh, wait, that word. Let me tell you why it's like this." You know, it's a level that I don't even get it at. But that's one of the great things about this book is you can reach it on lots of levels. And for me, I check in with myself from time to time. I'm like, how has my brain grown? What have I learned since the last time I came to this book? Because I taught this a lot. Um, I taught at UNM in honors starting in like 2003. And I taught there for 12 years, and then we left for Europe. And when we came back from Europe, I came back to honors. And Somewhere in that first 12 years when I was teaching it in a different translation, one day I just got to class and I was like, I think I hate Odysseus. 
oh my gosh, I've read this a million times and I think I hate the main character. I think he's terrible. I think he's a jerk and he's bad and a liar and mean. I'm not sure I'm happy with teaching this today. And I said it to my class and they were like, no, 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 let let me tell you why he's good. And I left feeling like, he might still be a jerk. Um, So my relationship with the poem changed as I changed in my own life. And then coming to this new translation, I was like, oh, I'm seeing this in a whole new way. I'm seeing like the way she chooses to translate a lot of old translations, a lot of, I'm going to say male translations, often talk about the women who serve in Odysseus's house as maids. And we get the sense that, you know, they wear a little uniform and they come in in dust and they get paid for their work. That's what a maid does in regular life, right? Well, these women are enslaved. They don't get to choose whether they work there or not. And Wilson makes a conscious choice to call them slaves, slave girls. We're not allowed to forget that whatever decisions these women make, and some of their decisions are good and some of them are bad, and they pay really hard at the end for what happens to them, for for the choices that they made, right? There are consequences for them that are Worse, I think, than for some of the men in the poem. Worse than most of the men in the poem. All but one. Um, And she really lets us remember, never lets us forget, that whatever reason those women made those choices, they did it under the yoke of slavery. They couldn't just quit their job and get a better job. Right. I love that. I think we'll get to that ending part as well with uh, Telemachus and the kind of the choices that he makes there. I think that's that. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Who do you identify with now when you when you read it? Which character or characters? Are there moments that are hit more at home? Are you? I mean, I fundamentally, I I do identify with Odysseus, and I think now that I'm older than I was when I was teaching it way back, I see that he is, as Wilson tells us, he's a complicated man. We're not going to see a a hero being 100% heroic. He's not Superman without any kind of flaw. He is a man who has some really good strengths and some weaknesses, and he has to carry all of those with him. So I identify with him. I identify with Penelope. She's the hero of this, as far as I'm concerned. Margaret Atwood wrote a famous retelling of this called the Penelope, which tells it from her point of view and uh, addresses. Yeah, I have. I love it. Although I read it recently at IAI uh, to do one of my craft papers on. And I I found that it seemed uh, a little bit early 2000s and not as modern as it felt right when it came out. So uh, I had... I took issue with some things that I didn't take issue with when I read it, like the day it came out. Um, But really, Penelope, she's as clever as Odysseus. She's smart, and she's good, and she's loyal. And I think all those things are really important. And she exemplifies them in many ways much better than he does. Yeah, it's so funny that how her her loyalty is so stressed throughout the poem and his loyalty is nothing you know it i mean we can't be shocked there's a double standard there's a double standard now but what thousands of years ago but like so (laughs) 
Yeah, right. Um, you don't have to be loyal. You don't have to be loyal to a girl. You would have to be loyal to a man. You have to be loyal to those guys you were fighting with, but not a woman. Yeah. Why would you be loyal to one of those? Well, um, I want you to tell me about a couple of of Odysseus's stops along the way that that mean something to you, or that you look forward to. Like, what are what are some of the the characters, the spots where he is that you uh, you enjoy more than others? I guess. I there's this moment where he's first out on the ocean and he he's flailing around in the sea and a sort of a really kind of low end bottom of the the ladder goddess sees him and she's like oh he's suffering so much i want to help him and she gives him this really specific set of instructions like you are clinging to this raft, but that raft is going to bring you down. You're going to die if you're on this raft. So I'm going to give you this magic scarf that I wear and you're going to tie it around yourself. You're going to take off all your clothes because you have all these fancy clothes on and they're weighing you down too. All these things of civilization that you think are helping you really aren't helping you. But if you tie on this thing and you do the specific things that I say, and then you'll get to shore. You'll make it. I'm going to do that for you. And then when you're done, throw my scarf back because it's kind of my power emblem and I'll get in trouble if I don't have it. And Odysseus, he's wearing these heavy, beautiful clothes that were given to him. And this he's on this raft and he's like, no, you're stupid. I'm not going to do that. And he almost drowns. And then he goes, you know what? I'm going to try that thing that the nice <laughs> goddess said. And he tries it and it works and he throws it back to the ocean and he, he's on land. And I think it's this incredible lesson for him where he's like, he thinks he knows it. He's the smartest guy in the world. Everything in his life has always told him he's the smartest guy in the room. And sometimes listening to somebody else, even if it's a woman, might be a good idea. And that happens to him repeatedly. And he every time he gets a little bit better at getting that these specific instructions, they're almost like an incantation, right? Double, double toil and trouble. You have to say it in the right way and put in the right ingredients to get the outcome that you want. And he learns that. And the more he does that, the the better off he is. So I like that moment because she's not Athena. She's not somebody who's, you know, Beyonce level well-known. She's just kind of this basic goddess and she wants to help him and he's, he thinks he's too good for it. And then he realizes he's not. So I love that. What should I take from the fact that nobody survives in Odysseus's group except for Odysseus? Um, it's important to read the whole contract before you sign it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like his men, um, they, they trust him a little, but they don't trust him enough. And in some situations, they're right not to trust him because he lies to them. But he, he, um, he lies to them in that way that your, your parents would have lied to you for your own best good. You know, He lies to them when he knows that telling them the truth is not going to get him what he wants. <laughs> But I think the fact that all of those people who were with him die, I mean, it's really tragic. 
it's really awful and it's going to be echoed when he comes home with all the people who die. I think it fundamentally brings us back to the idea that war is terrible. Leaving for war is terrible. Being in war is terrible. And what happens to you when you come home is terrible. So it's underscoring for us this lesson that we learned from the Iliad, which is war is hard on the people who have to fight it. it it's funny. When I think of, when I thought of this before I read it, uh, I really just think of it as his journey. And I think, you know, the sirens are very popular in culture. Um, uh, Cyclops, uh, you know, which is not his name, but, you know, whatever the... <laughs> I forgot his I forgot his name unfortunately. It's um, Polyphemus, but you're you're it's Polyphemus, but it won't be on the quiz, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that should be on the quiz. Um, <laughs> um it is kind of like I so that's what I think of when I think of that as the story. But so much happens after Odysseus is back home that I never heard of, but and also now that's what I kind of think of as this story. Like the actual travel parts kind of haven't really stuck with me as far as like leaving an impact. It's what happens when he's at home. Um, Can we talk a little bit about what happens at home? And also like, am I wrong with this? Is is why, why had I not heard of this part of it? Well, I don't think you're wrong about it for sure. I mean, basically it gives us what we get from any adventure story, right? Something, something monsters fight, fight, fight. Something, something, monsters, fight, fight, fight. Again, we know he's Odysseus. He's going to make it. Maybe all those other guys aren't going to make it. They don't. But um, Odysseus is going to make it out of here. The stakes are high, but they're not too high. We feel that safety that we feel when we know who the protagonist is. Um, so that, I think, those are the parts that would have been in that like edited high school text version, right? we got to get kids interested in this. We'll just give them all the adventure parts. But the parts that are fundamentally meaningful are about family. Telemachus, it represents sort of his whole generation of young men whose fathers all went away to war. And what we see with all those suitors who have, some of which are, some of whom are from Ithaca, where Odysseus is king, but some of whom who have have come in from other parts of Greece to try to win Penelope to get to be the king by marrying her. Um, Those are a whole generation of fatherless boys. And the things that they do, the like poor decisions that they make, the way they violate hospitality, that's called Xenia, which is a big concept that happens all through the poem, like what you owe as a host versus what you owe as a guest because we are living in a world where there aren't any hotels. So you always have to depend on people to help you. Um, That whole generation of boys, they don't know how to act. They don't know how to be. They, nobody taught them how to become men. And so they're sort of trapped in this perpetual adolescence. And it takes Odysseus coming home to like set his house right. And it's a metaphor for what we think the importance of family is. Like what the role is, what the relationship is between a father and son, what they each owe each other. 
And that's why it's, that's what makes it important and meaningful. And that's why those parts stick with you when you're not 14 and reading them in your literature book. Right. That makes sense. I'm glad you brought up the Xenia because that's a concept I hadn't heard of. I mean, it's a concept that we have in the South, you know, certainly somebody comes over, but I love, as I understand the ritual, like you would arrive as a stranger and you would be washed and fed and given wine, libations would be poured to the gods. Um, it definitely made me want to just eat smoked meat and drink a bunch of wine. Oh, and some olives. Stuff. If nothing else, that was fun. Yes, and have some olives, exactly. And then you would be almost like safe. You know, you would be welcomed and then you would be sent off with gifts for your journey, which I just, I kind of love that system. And I, and I liked how they talked about in the introduction that you know, this could seal generations of, of friendship. Like, like, you know, my granddad used to do that with his granddad. Therefore you and I are buddies and we can trust each other. I just, I thought that was very interesting, especially when compared or contrasted with, um, say like the song of ice and fire and the red wedding and things like those kind of things that are like, I, I found that fascinating and I enjoyed that part of the book a lot. Right. And like, um, Unlike history, which, you know, Martin kind of based all of his writing in something that had happened in real life in history. Um, you know, clearly it's a fictionalized world, but but he he tried to base it in things that humans really do. This thing about Xenia is like the it's the best part of society, right? It's the kindest, most generous, most trusting part of society. And as you're leaving war which is a complete violation of trust and hospitality, right? It's the Greeks show up on the shore of Troy to knock down their walls and take all their stuff, which is the opposite of being um, a good guest, right? It would be like if you invited someone to stay at your house and they just like took everything that was good and set fire to everything else and left after <laughs> they, like it just, it's terrible, right? But this idea yeah. of hospitality of Xenia is like fundamental to the way that they interact with the gods, right? Because the premise of Xenia is that any traveler who comes to your door could be a god in disguise. We know that the gods like to dress up as other people and come do stuff. We know that from Athena in this book, and we know Zeus loves to put on a fancy outfit and come down and meet a new lady. Like that's his whole jam. So the idea is anybody who knocks on your door could be a god. And if you turn them away, that's not going to be good. These are not forgiving gods. They have a great big book of grudges, and they will put you and your whole family down for generations. I always like to compare it to that opening scene of Beauty and the Beast, right? The, the woman comes to the door of Beast's castle when he's still a boy, and he, she knocks and she says, give me... Uh, a place to stay for the night and I'll give you this magic rose. And he's like, no, you're a smelly old lady. <laughs> she turns him into a beast and it has oh, to be okay, you know, <laughs> magic that fixes them. Right. I always like to give a good Disney metaphor for my students. Um, I appreciate that. So, like, and, and lots of fairy tales feature that element that you're tested um, by someone like Chaucer has this in uh, the wife of Bath's tale where, 
there's a an ugly woman that's that a fancy knight has to marry and when he marries her and is kind to her then she transforms into a beautiful woman she was testing him so this whole idea of odysseus and him going from place to place testing to see if he can trust people everybody his son his wife his own father he tests to make sure he can trust them xenia is the god he comes back you. in disguise Right. He does. So, he, he comes, comes back. Thanks to Athena. Yeah, he comes uh, in back in disguise. As... The, the, and, you know, the Christian mythology, you know, with, uh, you know, we, what, when, when did we see you, God? We saw you when you were the, the homeless person, the, you know, all that kind of stuff too as well. Uh, Absolutely. Myths, I mean, myths have tons of common threads. And this idea that you can't treat things badly because of how they look that's like when we're telling stories to teach children things that's a a a moral idea that we want children to understand so xenia is hugely important to the way that they see themselves in relationship to the gods and in relationship to each other and we do it yeah we do it now all the time right uh, the rule at my house is you never ring the doorbell with your hand because you have to ring it with your elbow because your arms are full, right? If you're coming to somebody's house, you're bringing them gifts because they're being kind to you. And that back and forth is really important. And all those suitors sitting at Odysseus's house because their dad didn't wasn't there to teach them how to behave, they're all eating and feasting and waiting around to steal some guy's wife all things that they would know better than to do. They they learn their lesson very briefly because they only get a minute or two to realize the lesson before they're all done. They don't get to put it into a practice, really. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. But, but they will serve as a cautionary tale. Does Telemachus become a man? Does he mature? Does he grow? I think that we see Telemachus at the beginning and Thank any you. way you Telemachus. say his, no 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 I was just gonna say any way you say his name is great because number one he's fictional and number two he's it's from a four thousand years ago and we're approximating it into English anyway. It doesn't matter. You're um, very kind. He's not gonna be offended. I say it one way, other people say it different ways. Um, if we were trying to say it the most Greek way, it would be like Telemachus, and that doesn't sound great to say a million times. Anyway, Odysseus' son, um, he starts out as a really petulant child, right? He he has a tantrum, right? Because all these guys are in his house and they won't leave. And they're trying to bang his mom. (laughs) He's not happy. (laughs) But we don't see him express it in any way that's productive. We don't see him take any action. He just goes like, wah. I can't, they won't go away. And Athena comes to him and basically takes him on a journey. He gets a little mini journey within this big journey, takes him on a journey to teach him how to be a man. She gets him a ship. She gets him supplies. She gets him a best friend, Pisistratus, who is Nestor's son. He gets a little sidekick, which is really great. Um, (laughs) But she basically sends him on this journey. Remember that in the first book, uh, Athena comes down to him and she says, hey, she's in disguise as um, a fancy guy. And she says, hey, are you Odysseus' son? And he says, well, that's what my mother says. He he like insinuates that I don't know. Like <laughs> I've never right. met him and you know how women are. Um, 
he doesn't even yeah. have the identity of being Odysseus's son. And remember when we were talking about epithets, one of the big epithets that comes through for men in general is blank son of blank, right? So mm. Odysseus son of Laertes, Telemachus son of Odysseus, your family lineage is incredibly important for that very reason that you brought up. Like it goes back generations, these relationships that people have. So knowing your family heritage and owning it is really important. So Odysseus is, I mean, Telemachus isn't even sure he's Odysseus's son. And Athena sends him on this journey to sort of meet all of Odysseus's friends from war, people that he fought with. So that as he sees them, he hears about his father. And each one of those people goes, oh, look at you. You look just like Odysseus. Oh, what a great speech, Telemachus. That's exactly what your father sounds like. His little side journey is a trip to teach him who he is, that he's Odysseus's son. And he gets back and he's much more confident. He gets back and when Odysseus shows up in disguise, he sees his son treating the, the sort of old man servant that Odysseus ends up with at the beginning. He, he sees him treating this man with respect and with Xenia. He, he acts more like a man. And then he gets to fight side by side with his father which in Greek culture, being a warrior and fighting with another man that you respect, that's a big deal. So in many Greek ways, he becomes a man. We also see that the more confident he gets as a man, the sassier he is to his mother. <laughs> He's like, go to your room, go take a nap. He right. bosses her around. And for a modern reader, we're like, ah, shut your mouth. <laughs> Talk to your mother like that, young man. But for a contemporary audience, he's asserting himself. He's proving that he's the master of the house. And Penelope responds that way. She's like, oh, I guess I will take a nap. Nobody's bossed me around in ages. <laughs> so, you know, it's all pretty gender normative at that point. But, but within the context of the poem, he's doing the things that he can to assert that he's a man. Those aren't always good things, though. You had a question earlier about Telemachus and the decision he makes about the slave women. Yeah, so I think that's fascinating again because we have the other translations that call them servants or maidservants, uh, presuming that they actually had free will to either sleep with these suitors or not. To you know, but they are slaves, and then rather than give them a clean death, uh, he makes the decision to hang them, and it's brutal. It's incredibly it brutal. So the situation is, there are all these women, some of whom have spent the last five years or so sleeping with suitors. Because they're slaves, we don't know if they had any free will in that. Slaves are property. These men are showing that they don't respect Odysseus's property by eating his food and using up his wine, treating the women of his household the same way as property. That's pretty much the same level of disrespect. So maybe they were forced to sleep with these men, or maybe they were looking for the next thing that was going to happen to them, right? Odysseus isn't coming back as far as everybody's concerned. One of these guys is going to marry Penelope and going to be their new owner. So do they want to be on the good side of their new owner or the bad side of their new owner? It's not a great choice, but it's maybe a choice that they could make. 
within what was allowed to them. So either they were forced or they made the best choice given the situation. But either way, they're not like giggling, you know, concubines who are happy to sleep with whoever, right? Right. Odysseus is so offended when he gets back. He's offended that these men would violate his property. But then weirdly, he's mad at the property. So he says, give them a clean death. Like, I need to know which ones were bad, but kill them. And Telemachus gets the idea of hanging them. And they, he hangs them after they have cleaned up the mess of the killing of all the other people. So all the suitors who were in his house, like over a hundred young men, somewhere around Telemachus's age, they're all slaughtered. And they're dying and bleeding because they weren't slaughtered, you know, they didn't get like sleeping potion or something that knocked them out. They're all stabbed, they're speared, they're gored to death, and they're bleeding all over the place. These maids are called out. The bodies get stacked up in a heap. The maids are called out to clean up all the blood. It's the blood of men that they, in some way or other, were intimate with. They have to clean all the tables, free up the blood, and then they hang. It's terrible. Yeah. It in Penelope... Yeah, it's it's the worst thing. You were asking me before, what are the things that I carry with me from Odysseus or from the Odyssey? Or when I teach this as a legacy that we have to deal with, we have to deal with that legacy of violence. We have to decide how much has this influenced our culture and how much are we willing to reject this? Because some of the choices Odysseus makes aren't things that, that we like or approve of. We might think he's really clever when he tells Polyphemus, the Cyclops, uh, who stabbed your eye out? It was nobody. And he says, <laughs> nobody poked my eye out. Somebody go kill nobody. And all the other people are like, you're so weird. They just don't That's even weird. show up. Yeah. 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 Um, but we may think, oh, he's so clever. We like that, but we don't like this. Um, yeah. In, in that version the Penelope that Atwood writes, she actually makes the the hanged maids a Greek chorus who speak between the chapters um, in their sort of murdered form. It's really powerful. Oh, that's very cool. And um, I think Telem oh I think Telemachus does that, one ups that, says we'll hang them and make it a worse death as a way of proving to his dad that he's a man. Well, that's kind of what I think also. That's where I was kind of going with that. Um, Again, taking that, they fought side by side now. Uh, He's proven himself. He's been a jerk to mom. And now I'm going to go one step forward, dad. Look what I can do. Yeah, look at me, dad. Look at me. Right. Right. And Odysseus lets him. Yeah. So he becomes a man. We just have to decide, are we happy at the kind of man he becomes? Yeah. What do you think about the, the, the Homer question? Was this the work of one person? Does it matter? Where do you fall out on, on, on this? Wow, wow, wow. I kind of think it goes back to the, is Shakespeare Shakespeare question? Like in some ways, it's really compelling to wonder, was there a single person who could do this? Like, I wish that I could write this way. Is there one person who can do that? But I think 
our experience of the world is, yes, we've read books by one person that are brilliant and amazing. The thing about the Homer question is, this was a this was an epic poem, so it was n- like Shakespeare's plays. We were never meant to read it, right? You were never supposed to wonder, is that Helena or Hermia? All those H names are making me crazy, like when you're reading Midsummer Night's Dream, because there were actors there being those people. You didn't have to worry. Helen is really tall and Hermia is really short. I got this. Right. Um, so the, the poem was a performance piece, which means I think what we have here, and I am definitely, I'm not a super scholar of the Odyssey. I'm sure that many more learned people than I have different opinions about this. But for me, I feel like what we're getting is the best version, right? People workshopped it. They tried it out. They went, oh, you know what really killed last night in performance? The hanging the maids. That, like, people were just like, whoa, when that happened. <laughs> so make sure when we write this down, we include that part. So it was a living piece for a long time before it was set down in a particular version. Almost like back to that Avengers metaphor. Um, if you read comics, there are a million different versions of what happens and a continuity goes and then it gets shut down and they reboot it and start a whole new continuity. Um, putting the film together kind of canonized the story in one particular way that the most people knew. And I think that's what we get with this book that we hold in our hands is like all the best actors, every good storyteller who did this, like this is the version that had all the best parts. Of it. Oh, I love that. I love that way of looking at it. Uh, it reminded me something a little bit in last month's um, podcast. Uh, David Dalt introduced me to Orson Welles's F for fake, mm. this movie, which I now love, but I had never seen. And I, was, I wanted to quote something from it because it reminds me of this. It's um, it's him wondering about this. You know, a fact of life. We're going to die. Be of good heart, cried the dead artist out of the living past. Our songs will all be silenced, but what of it? Go on singing. Maybe a man's name doesn't matter all that much. And I think that's kind of where I come down on it. It doesn't matter who was Homer. It doesn't matter if it was Shakespeare, really. It's the, what matters is like the work and the legacy as you know, your class <laughs> talks about and how it's affected us and how it still stays with us. Yeah. And it's a really tough idea to wrap our heads around when we're so deeply embroiled in a world where we're trying to deal with a, a writer or a creator and what they create and who they are as a person at the same time. We're grappling a lot in our culture with, can I like, X's movie if X was a terrible person like uh, 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 that that conflict means that things that you used to love or you're crossing off your list now um, and uh, the past gives us the luxury of not having to know if the anonymous Beowulf poet was a terrible guy right I don't know he, I mean he was probably a Viking so yes he was probably awful <laughs> But, but I don't need to worry about that. I can let the work stand. But it's also a really hard thing for us as creators, right? To think, sure, wipe my name off of it. <laughs> Enjoy it all you want. Um, because we, we invest so much into our work. That's really hard to think of it being separated from us. But that, that is what happens, right? 
Yeah. If, if, if you're lucky, if we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> right. We should be so lucky as to write something that lasts past our names. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about the Odyssey? Oh, I love it. It's great. I could talk about it for like five more hours. Um, there are a lot of things in it that are so modern. There are a lot of things in it that are just these little parcels of treasure. Like I don't know if you noticed. I know I didn't notice like the first X jillion times I read it. Um, but there are all kinds of amazing similes in the Odyssey, right? So we get to a moment of extreme emotion or fear, and the author almost leaves the story and then says, as when a lion goes to its cave and you're like why am i talking about a lion oh and they're God. long too <laughs> they're long like a man right? in the ocean swimming to land and like just as when <laughs> as when an octopus wraps its arms and you're like looking at all these things and you're thinking why but I, like it's this this amazing talent that the poet has to stop the action and make sure that you're understanding the emotional significance of it. Like maybe you got really caught up in the story, but what you need to think about is this, or this is a hero. This is Odysseus. Of course he can do that. Blah, blah, blah. He's going to poke some guy's eye out with a big stick. That's a thing, but I don't do that in my real life. How am I going to connect with this guy? You'll get this tiny metaphor of, or this tiny simile that starts out as when, as when a mother holds her newborn baby. Like the poet gives us these other things that are more in our experience to compare with these extraordinary things that we can't imagine ourselves doing. These tiny little humanizing moments. If you're a guy who lives in Greece, you've probably seen an octopus. So when the poet stops and describes like this situation was like when an octopus does this thing, you're like, ooh, ooh, I know octopus. I got this. You know, there are these moments where these very specific similes give you a window into the poem that you might not have had. They don't work as well for us because it's not like, as when you drop your phone and the screen shatters, even though you just bought it last week and you scream up to the heavens, why? So did Odysseus feel that way when he landed on the beach, right? Um, the, the similes aren't from our lives, so they're harder to connect to, but for the audience hearing it in the contemporary period, it was these little windows of personalization. So I love all of those moments. And then I think like from a writing point of view, what talent to be telling this story, stop in the middle at a really exciting point, know your audience is going to stick with you and go off on what seems to be a tangent, but something that really supports the theme, like just a little extra work for you there. Right. I love that. I love Penelope. I love that there are these startling moments of feminism where Calypso's like, seriously? Zeus says I have to give up my boy toy? <laughs> when <laughs> Zeus gets a boy toy, he gets a, a girl toy or a whatever toy. He's, he's pretty equal opportunity as a guy. Um, when Zeus takes a lover, he gets to keep him. Why, why do I have to give it up? This sucks. Why is there inequality even in the gods so i I thought that was great it's a great moment um again moments that resonate with us in a contemporary time i like that mostly i love this idea 
that okay so you know keats the the poet right romantic mm-hmm. poet there have been a lot of translations of homer and at, in keats's life all the people that he knew knew a lot of latin but they didn't necessarily get educated in greek so they couldn't read it in the original they themselves these pretty fancy guys were dependent on translators and you know he'd read a lot of translations and then this poet chapman does a translation. It's kind of a freewheeling, loose translation, but it's really modern and alive. Chapman translates the the Iliad and the Odyssey. Keats reads them, and when he reads them, he has to sit down and write a poem immediately. He's like, oh my God, I have to write a poem about how beautiful it is to read this poem that I love. And like, here I am, hundreds of years later, in my, you know, English survey 295 in undergrad, I get to read Keats's poem. And I'm connected in this line, me to Keats, to Chapman, to Homer. There's this through line of history where we're all experiencing the same thing together in this place where time doesn't matter. And I really love that. And that's definitely like one of the themes of my book. But, but I just love this idea that we can experience the same thing that Keats experienced. Wonder at this poem. It's really awesome. That's lovely. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Jonna, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me chained to my desk grading papers. You can find me one. Oh, oh, online. Um, My name is Jonathan, like Jonathan with no N. So jonathacotler.com. That's a website where you can see some of the things that I've written in the past. I will link to that. We'll link to some other show notes things. Have you seen any of the Emily Wilson uh, videos of her reading? I have. I follow her on Twitter. (laughs) I told you I'm like a total dork. She got to take. Coming in right behind you. She got to take a trip to Troy recently because she's deeply in the end of edit of translating the Iliad. She got to take a trip to Troy for the first time and she tweeted about it. And I was just like, <gasps> she was getting to stand in the place where this poem happened, where maybe Achilles stood. Um, and she was so deeply moved by it that I was deeply moved. I'm looking at my phone and like tears are in my eyes as she's taking a picture. So... Yeah, I love her. I love that. So I'm going to link to some of those videos. And I love when she does uh, Mr. T, the young boy T. Uh, I've already forgotten how you pronounced it. Uh, and she has, like, she puts her hat on backwards. And she talks in this little whiny voice like that. You know, I'm him. And blah, blah, dad, we're going to do this. Um, yeah, she's she's pretty spectacular. She's spectacular. Uh, so and she's for- doing... She's doing what the poet would have done, like making the characters live. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for uh, being a part of my origin story with the Odyssey. Thank you, Michael. I'm so happy. This was a joy for me. It was the best. Thank you so much for having me here. This was a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much to Jonna Codler for being on the podcast and for introducing me to Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey by Homer. For a preview of next month's episode, stay tuned. It's coming up right now. Hey, Michael, this is Shane Hawk, author of Anoka and co-editor of Never Whistle at Night. 
I've got a movie I think you'll love, or at least I do. It's a film from 2022 called The Menu, and it's fantastic. Check it out.